The Messy Middle podcast is hosted on Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it is the easiest way to make a podcast. First of all, it's free, which considerably helps with all of the production costs you normally have, except that on Anchor, there's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on all platforms, including Spotify, Apple, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum audience through sponsorships and monthly contributions from your subscribers. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. This is Alyssa Lenick of Littlest Fitness. And I'm Kate, otherwise known as Coach Carmichael. We are PhD students, endurance athletes who lift, outdoors enthusiasts, and entrepreneurs. We believe the narrative of the fitness and wellness industry is often far too extreme. So forget about the black and white messages that you've heard. On this podcast, we believe that life is best lived in the messy middle. and welcome back to another episode of the Messy Middle Podcast. I'm super excited about today's podcast. So if you guys haven't caught on, we're doing season two a little differently. And then one of the things Kate and I decided to do was to do solo podcasts with guests of our select topics that are a little bit experts in those just the same as us. So I'm super excited today to have Steph of Steph Science Access on our um, podcast with me. So this isn't actually an interview, but Steph is going to co-host this week on this episode on metabolism. So if you guys follow along with my PhD information, you know that whole body, human subjects, research, metabolism type stuff, exercise or postprandial is my research interest. But Steph's great because her PhD as well, because she's also another uh, PhD championship champion out here in the world with me, um, is more so in the actual cellular metabolic environment. So in humans and that kind of stuff. And she studies specifically cancer. But understanding tissue-specific metabolism or that tiny more minute details. So between the two of us, we should be able to bridge the gap to be able to explain enough nitty-gritty science for our nerds out there, but then scale it back to the whole body. So those of you who are like, okay, well, what does this even mean to me? We can bring back in more context for you. I will also add, if it's either released before or after this, if you're interested in the effect of menstrual cycle hormones in that on performance and exercise and metabolism, that will be a whole separate episode with Claire Sai. I will be co-hosting with her as well. So if you listen to this today and you're like, wait, I really wanted to know that information, be sure to actually listen to that episode where we're going to go into more details on that specifically because I know a lot of you want that in this audience. So we're doing a whole episode for that. So without further ado, Steph is smart. She's cool. I think she's the most underrated, hilarious person on Instagram. If you don't watch her stories, she's like worth putting the sound on for if you're able to listen to audio on your phone. Um, Steph is hilarious. She's super good about science communication and also has a ton of amazing resources on how to make your science and your Instagram communication more accessible. I took her course. Um, She's also wicked smart on top, not only being hilarious and inclusive. So I'm super excited to have Steph on today. This might be the funniest science lesson you ever had. Think about like Miss, Miss Frizzle on steroids, literally. So, hello, Steph. <laughs> Hi, Liz. Thanks for that introduction. I hope I can live up to the you know, the, the Miss Frizzle hilariousness, but I'm excited to, to chat about metabolism today. So what we went ahead and did is I took your guys' questions from Instagram and I said, hey, what the heck do you want to know about metabolism to make sure that we're giving you exactly what you want and need? And we made a little bit of an organization that 
I think it encompasses a lot of the very, very basic metabolism 101 things that you may want to know, need to know, maybe need a refresher on, um, depending on your background. And then we do have some listener questions that came specifically from you guys at the end. Some of the questions we are not going to answer because we just integrated them into what we're going to talk about anyway beforehand. But we do have some of those for you guys at the very end that we'll pick the best of and answer. And hopefully you guys learn a lot. So without further ado, Steph. Yeah. Do you want to define metabolism for us? <laughs> oh God. I don't know if I have like a one set metabolism, like <laughs> besides just being like, you know, this is how our cells and our bodies are making energy, making all of the things that they need to do to function. Like we're talking like, you know, all the building blocks of cells, like metabolism is this massive, massive thing. Like if you look at a map of metabolism, it's not just like, this happens, this happens energy. It's like this integrated, like messy little map of like all of these things happening at once. So metabolism in and of itself is obviously like, you know, we need energy to survive, but it's also like a lot of other things too. I don't know if you want to add to that definition or not. Yeah. So the really simple way is I say it's an integrative communication across multiple body systems, because that's what it is. Your body is sending little hormone signals. And I like to think of them as like message messages. So like a little carrier pigeon with a message is coming from like one body tissue to one body system through another. And these little messages are hormones um, that they're kind of like their little signals that they're sending each other. So we're going to say hormones today, but I think a lot of people, when they think of hormones, they think of like cliche Instagram hormone and balance hormones, but hormones are all across our body to communicate things. They're not necessarily like a good or bad thing. That's just a, a way our body sends little signals to each other on what to do or whatever it is, or enzyme like reactions, things like that. So that's kind of what's happening in our body is it's just sending these little messages of what to do or setting off these little reactions that then sets off something else or tells something else to do something or turn something on versus off. So you could think of these things kind of like ping ponging around our body saying, hey, do this. Hey, you go here. You break down. You need to be stored here kind of thing. Instead of the normal classic, I think a lot of people when they think of metabolism, they just think of energy. My body's burning, but your body burns energy by sending these messages. And it's not only burning energy. It's also creating tissue, breaking it down, storing things, breaking them down almost constantly. I mean, this is why we eat every day, right? Like I think people like really like forget like your body's doing a lot of work just to keep you alive. And so it uses, you know, pretty much your whole body, right? For metabolism, but mainly things, and you can add if I miss anything, it's going to be like your liver, your pancreas, Mm -hmm. your adipose tissue, which is your fat tissue, um, muscles, Mm -hmm. even your digestive tract is playing a major role in this, your your brain, your, Mm -hmm. you know, how your brain communicates with your body. All of these things are giving, it's crosstalk is a big fancy word that's a really click your word we use in research um, mm-hmm. between these things so they know what to do to maintain ultimately homeostasis in our bodies. Yeah. So do you have anything to add to that? I know I kind of went on a tangent there. but No, no, that I love that. That's a pretty good way of like saying it. It's, you know, all of these things interacting and it's not just burning. It's also like, let's build things. Let's make things. Let's, you know, keep going. <laughs> that kind of thing. I think that was a great, a great definition. Yeah. So our metabolism is taking energy from our diets, from food stuff is a Mm -hmm. fancy way of saying it. So you guys think of like metabolism as like, well, if I eat a piece of chocolate or I even think about a burger, my like left cheek adipose tissue suddenly blows up. And it's not that, that, that simple. Right. And so metabolism is complex. It's adaptive. It's not linear. And it's not just like burning energy. Like I think people only think of burning energy, Mm -hmm. but you need energy to create these things and to Mm -hmm. sustain these reactions going on in your body. Um, And then it produces, 
you know, or it uses up that energy. So that's the burning part to do these things, but you like need energy to create energy. Like it's like, I know that seems really oversimplified, but I think for a lot of people, like they have that disconnect that your body is just pulling energy from itself all the time, but you need to provide it with energy to do those things and these things to function appropriately. And it's not just straightforward food in, energy out. There's a whole bunch of stuff that happens in between those things. What do you think, Steph, is probably the biggest misconception about metabolism that you see, especially as someone who works at the more cellular level um, on actual tissues compared to people's very, very zoomed out version of even beyond whole body, just like what gen pop tends to think metabolism is versus like if we zoom in really closely, what's actually like going on versus the misconceptions that you see. Yeah. So I think like from my perspective of like, I look at like individual cells, like that's how far like I go into looking at metabolism. Mm -hmm. And I think like the thing that I see most often is that people think that it's something that they need to control or like they, Mm -hmm. they have some kind of like magical control over like they need to be taking these like random supplements to like boost their metabolism and they need to be the ones boosting their metabolism and like they need to be controlling it and all this stuff. And it's like, it, it, you don't really need to control it. It just kind of does its own thing. You know what I mean? Like, it's not something that you have to be constantly like worrying about. It's not something you need to be constantly like, you know, throwing wood onto a fire and like trying to get it to be bigger. Like that's not necessarily like what I view as metabolism, like at a cellular level, it's like all of these things happening. And it's like, Oh wow. Like this is really cool that all of these things can happen without like, you know, somebody being like, Hey, like you need to make more energy. It's just, they can happen at that cellular level because of the the tiny little crosstalk even between cells to like tissue the whole body. And it's not like, you know, you don't have to be as a person like cognizing, like thinking about this of like, okay, I need to do this to boost my metabolism. You know what I mean? I think that's like one thing that I see a lot of people like really get into like the dirt in and they're like spinning their wheels being like, I need to boost my metabolism. I need to do this. I need to do this. And it's like, your cells don't know your arbitrary rules. So like, yourself what they're gonna keep doing you know what I mean I love that I love that because I think people think that like I don't know people try to exert so much control over things that they're Mm -hmm. literally not able to control kind of thing and they end up just feeling exhausted and then frustrated and then probably saying well I have a broken metabolism yeah I have a bad metabolism because in their definition of what metabolism is they do but in traditional sense, they either don't or they're doing all the things that are almost like counterintuitive to what they would actually sh- need to be spending their time doing to help support, I guess, maybe not boost, but support's probably a better word. Yeah. And we, we are going to talk about that at the end. But yeah, I mean, you think about metabolism, it's like literally cell to cell, like within one cell, then to its neighbor and then next to it. And then whatever that makes up to a tissue. And then that tissue talks to another tissue. And yeah. so we'll talk about here in a second, but Steph does the really nitty gritty little stuff, but I do whole body stuff. So we will have some key things that we can tell you that can help support this kind of thing. Cause that is my research niche and focus, but you're not in your day-to-day life. You're not going to be, you know, just fine tooth controlling what's happening at these really tiny, tiny, tiny levels. And so on that note, let's talk about our metabolisms actually slow versus fast. And can we have a bad metabolism? Can we break our metabolism? I think that was probably our most highly requested question and topic. And before we get into this, I want to add the disclaimer that we are going to talk about certain things, but that doesn't necessarily mean it automatically applies to you. I think a lot of people automatically just declare they have a broken or bad metabolism when they've been spinning their wheels, trying all these things for years that just don't support them functioning as a human being. 
I think a lot of women say they have a bad metabolism when they've just spent a lot of time not building muscle tissue and trying to diet. Um, And I think that a lot of people don't even know how to define metabolism. So they're just giving themselves an arbitrary label and then identifying as it without actually knowing if they have a more positive or negative into the spectrum of metabolism, I guess you can say. So mm-hmm. as we talked about, metabolism is complex and, complex and adaptive. It's not linear. It responds to what you do kind of thing. So your metabolism probably at the end of the day, no matter what you're doing or what you think it's doing for you is not actually broken. It's probably just responding in a way that's trying to protect you or conserve energy um, or have enough energy to sustain the functions that Steph was talking about on these really minute levels. Because at the end of the day, you are a human organ sack and your body is trying to keep you alive. It does not care about your beach trip. Like at the end of the day, like your cells aren't like, well, shit, Steph and Alyssa are going to the beach this week. We better boost it up, boys. Like they're not having this conversation. Um, but there, there are some theories here and I don't know if Steph's as familiar with this stuff as me, cause this might be a little bit more in my whole body realm. I will say that there's a lot of nuisance to these conversations, but the ideas around adaptive metabolisms are not necessarily false metabolisms are adaptive and you can't have down-regulated metabolisms. Um, there's also, when we think of slow and fast metabolisms, metabolisms as a whole and like weight gain, we think of metabolism as weight gain, but it's a lot more than that. Um, you, about 60% of things that are tied to your genetics and underlying factors and your mom's diet and how you were raised growing up are going to impact these things and control and dictate maybe some of these physiological processes in your body, how they developed, whether before you were born, while you were in your mother, when you were growing up kind of thing. Um, but as a whole, there is this theory of slow and fast metabolisms called spinthrift versus thrifty metabolisms. Um, and the idea is that evolutionarily, people who expend a lot of calories actually are at a disadvantage, except for now in our high calorie available sedentary environment, where their bodies are going to expend more energy, which is actually inefficient. But now that we have a surplus excess of energy, when that's available, these people's bodies are more able to ramp up to account for that extra extra energy surplus. So you might see this. You see this all the time when people maybe do maintenance diets where like they actually can eat a ton of calories at maintenance or at a lower end of maintenance and their body weight kind of stays the same, but their bodies are just able to upregulate kind of. So that does affect maybe like when you see people who do reverse diets, so you eat more and you don't actually gain weight because your bodies are just upregulating to that higher energy intake. This can happen to anyone. This isn't just people with um, spendthrift metabolisms. And then the opposite idea of poor or bad metabolisms are people who evolutionarily actually probably had like an advantage of not dying because their bodies were really good at conserving energy. Um, so that if you went a week without eating, cause you couldn't hunt down your woolly mammoth. I don't know what we're eating out back in the day. The crops are low. Your body is able to downregulate your metabolism to conserve energy. So when those types of people go on maybe extreme calorie diets or really low energy deficits, their body, instead of expending a whole bunch of calories and losing adipose tissue or fat tissue, actually conserves that. So it feels like you feel like maybe you are an energy deficit, but it's harder because your body's more reactive and sensitive to that. And so that is a theory of it. Um, But I think it's also important to state that a lot of things can impact our body's responses, your current weight status, the adipose tissue you have, if you've been in a higher adipose tissue state for a longer period of time versus have lost weight versus if you've never gained weight at all in your life versus if you've, you know, had a higher body fat status your whole life, these things all play into this. So I don't want you to think like an absolutes. There's a lot of factors Mm -hmm. that go into this. 
Um, so it, it's easy to say we have slow versus fast, but I would say it's probably a spectrum mm-hmm. of it. Everyone's bodies are different. Um, some people are going, I'm a really high fidgety person and my dad and me are the same way. And so we're convinced that we actually just maintain body status while eating a lot of food. Honestly, we're very physically active when we work out, but my sister has the same genetics as me and she's not built like me, but she's a lot more sedentary than me. So to some degree, I'm probably a thriftier person, right? Mm -hmm. But the underlying genetics there can dictate our response versus if I was completely sedentary, I wouldn't have the same responses to things. So keep this in mind, guys, that like we're not speaking absolutes and we don't want you to diagnose yourself. Now, Steph, I just like talked a whole <laughs> bunch. I know this is more human subject stuff and I talk about this no, in yeah. like lab meetings and stuff. We've, we've read papers on this, but do you have anything to add about this from your experience? Because you are in a dietetics department and you do work with these things, but also even in just like how cells work with energy in a way that like maybe we can make this even like a little deeper for our audience? Yeah, yeah. I would say like the one thing I want to add first is that like I think people think of like slow versus fast and they make it as good versus bad. So like it's bad if you have a slow metabolism or if it's bad if you're more of that thrifty phenotype or like, you know, that kind of thing. And it's not necessarily like a bad thing. It just it just is what it is. And it's how you kind of like think about that in terms of like what you said, like, it's not just that theory. It's all the things we do. It's our exercise. It's how much we eat. It's how much we've eaten at a certain level. Like, have we just been dieting our whole lives? Like, what is, how is that going to affect everything? And so it's like, you know, to the extent of like, which I said earlier, like, you know, you don't have some control over your metabolism. You also have like some control of like saying like, okay, well, like, do I need to eat more? Do I need to sleep more? Do I need to exercise more? Like that kind of yeah. thing. Like it, all of those things feed into metabolism. So like when, a good example, when we're talking about these theories, it's like, you know, these are theories, but we also like have to consider like all the things that are surrounding us. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's not like slow is bad and fast is good. And that's why like, I, I know I've made posts in the past of like, you know, oh, is my metabolism slow? It's like, I mean, like, technically, like, we think about this in terms of this theory, like, we can think about that that way, but people always, always think, like, slow is bad, and it's, like, it's not necessarily a bad thing, it's just something to consider. Yeah, Yeah. and I think for most people, like, if I brought you into my lab and I gave you a resting metabolic rate, Mm -hmm. for the most part, it would be within a 300-calorie range of what would be calculated for you from a calculation Mm-hmm. But keeping in mind that if yours is 300 calories lower on that spectrum, that might seem significant to you, especially if you're not highly active. So that does limit like say food intake to maintain body weight status, mm-hmm. not implying you must control your diet, but just from like a mathematical perspective. So mm-hmm. the difference is going to be different. Or like if someone had, you know, been a heavier weight and lost weight to be the same weight as say like say two people are 150 pounds, but one person was 200 and one down to 150 and one person was at 150 their entire life that person that went from 200 to 150 might have a lower metabolism at the same mm-hmm. body weight. It's not maybe, it's not going to be like thousands of calories, but yeah. maybe enough that it seems significant and it requires a little more effort to sustain that than the person who was maybe there their entire life. And that's where some of those differences are that I think people get confused, but it's not going to be this incredibly huge magnitude. It's really going to be down to a couple hundred calories, but you're yeah. not invalid for thinking that that is that, you know, that's not necessarily insignificant because that could be someone eating an extra candy bar every day to have higher dietary adherence versus someone not choosing to eat that for the output mm-hmm. that they're looking for. So it's not an insignificant thing, um, but it doesn't mean that your bodies are broken. They're still burning plenty of energy, mm-hmm. um, but it's about being more patient with your body's response and maybe not slashing calories, you know what I mean, or just overeating like crazy, but like being more 
in tune to how your body's feeling, your hunger, your fullness, things like that. Mm-hmm. I know that's very like people think that that's very woo woo, but that's very real. Your bodies will communicate with you what they're what they want you to do mm-hmm. to some degree. Um, so keeping in mind that slow and fast aren't good or bad. And the difference is not as significant as you think, but you're not invalid for thinking that that is more difficult to manage kind of thing. I don't know. Does that sum that up? I feel like. Yeah, Yeah, no, that's good. Okay. We wanted to be really careful on that one with you guys, because I know that's a sensitive topic for a lot of people. Um, And I will add to a lot of people, they've asked about things like set point theory and where your body sits. And the same kind of discussion applies to that environment affects Mm -hmm. that substantially um current weight status versus gain weight status versus weight loss all those things affect that so it's not just you are born to only sit at 150 for your entire life Mm -hmm. it can be adaptive it can settle it can shift it can be harder to shift back once it's been shifted up um Mm -hmm. recomping you know what i mean like there's all these factors that go into it so i want you to leave this first third of this conversation with the idea that some people might be more energy like spending than you they might be more frivolous with their calories their body might be but that doesn't mean that you don't have money to spend basically yeah. I like so, that analogy <laughs> I know I'm real my podcast talent is coming up with analogies on the spot <laughs> that's my talent okay So now that we've kind of gave you the background of a little bit nitty gritty, we're going to talk about, you know, the major macronutrients because we know that for my audience in fitness, they care about like macros, diets, and how that integrates with metabolism. Mm -hmm. Um, But then we are going to talk a little bit more about how we test this in labs um, and how this affects health and exercise because those are both components of metabolism. People tend to think of metabolism as like only being your health and only being diet, but exercise also has a very complex metabolic state. So to start with... Uh, Steph, you want to give us the down low one-on-one on calories and an energy balance? (laughs) I I can try. (laughs) So I guess like, I think a lot of people assume that with metabolism and stuff, we think of like, okay, well, we're only burning calories, right? Like that's how we kind of think about it. But it's also like, I mean, and we'll get to this probably in a second, but it's, it's not just calories. Like, I mean, obviously calories are important and thinking about like how much energy we're taking in in the day, but it's also like how much of that's from like carbs and fats and protein and like how, how are you like balancing those macronutrients? Because all of those macronutrients are going to feed into different parts of metabolism slightly differently. Mm -hmm. And they're going to like make more or less energy kind of like in the, that direction because of the way that they feed into like the metabolic pathways themselves. Um, but with calories, like you have to think about like going back to like how much we need a day, you know, are we eating enough calories that's actually going to support how much energy we need to make to support our body systems? Or like, are we eating less calories to like maybe change our weight status or we eating more calories to change our weight status or like, you know, build something, build muscle or something like that. Um, I think I'm going on a random tangent here. No, this is, this is, this is, this is true. Cause people think of just calories and calories of being, and that's an argument we see on the internet all the time between yeah. diet camps. They're like, are you saying broccoli and, sh- and chicken are the same as a Snickers bar? And yeah, you're like, yeah. well, no, the caloric density is equivalent, but of course different macronutrients are going to have different mm-hmm. pathways. It's like those yeah. things can both be true. Yeah, and you also got to think about like micronutrients too, because like while micronutrients don't necessarily directly make energy like the macronutrients do, micronutrients are involved in those processes. Like they're involved yeah. in like making all of the things that make metabolism work, or like you know metabolism even at the sort of like how do we digest things and like you know thinking about how those micronutrients in 
like go into that process are important too. So like, like you said, like, yeah, sure. Like this much broccoli, maybe the calorie equivalent to like this much of a candy bar, but like, they're going to have different amounts of like carbs, fats, and protein and different micronutrients, which are all going to affect like, you know, yeah, sure. They have not had the same number of calories, but ultimately like they're going to be slightly different when they break down. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, and you might be like that if you're listening to this, you might be one of those people who gets confused because I really do think the, the calories in calories out energy balance thing is it's good to get people to understand because at the end of the day, these things are going to be driven by energy at, at the, at the foundation of the pyramid of it all. Um, But at the same point in time, that doesn't mean that it's the only thing that matters. I think it gets oversimplified and lost in that conversation where some other people might be yelling, avoid sugar, avoid fat, avoid carbs, mm-hmm. no protein, high protein kind of thing. And they all actually do matter. Those things do matter. Um, food quality matters. Composition of food matters. It all is digested and used it slightly differently. Um, but keeping in mind that this means that if you genuinely want a cookie, it does come down to energy balance, but also mm-hmm. your diet as a whole shouldn't be only cookies. Like that's yeah. the missing conversation is like (laughs) you're not killing yourself with eating one piece of candy but even if you're in a calorie balance it's probably not a good idea to eat six candy bars a day as your diet yeah like exactly (laughs) but if you're on a desert island and you need to survive and not die probably give you energy like like these are all things that are like these can all coexist so i really encourage you to reframe how you think about this in terms and this is probably where the good bad absolute thinking originally stems from so i do think that to some degree the calories and calories out thing is good to fight that but i also think it doesn't fully explain all of it so we have three major macronutrients and you guys probably know this but carbs protein fat um, and they're all broken down in our body slightly differently, and they have different energy system pathways on which they're used. Um, and I think it's mostly important when we think about diet is when we think about it, it's kind of protein is kind of steady and controlled. Your protein isn't, it can be remetabolized into carbohydrate if it, your body needs that. It will break down protein either from muscle or take it from your diet. It'll take amino acids and turn it into carbs. It's a very energy costly thing, so your body doesn't really want to do that. Yeah. Um it only does it if it really has to. So when you eat protein, it kind of goes into this thing called the amino acid pool in your body. And these little amino acids just float around and they get used to build tissue and for energy, like, or supporting, uh, tissue building, not for energy production. They're not really used for energy. Your body doesn't like to use protein as energy. It kind of saves it for its little building blocks. It's like little Legos floating around in your body. Your body doesn't want to have to break them down. Um, so when we think about energy, metabolism, what we really think about is carbs and fat oxidation or carbon Mm -hmm. fat burning because carbs and fats are the main fuel sources that you're going to be consuming in your diet that are going to actually be used for energy production or storage. So you could think of protein as kind of constant and you'll see a lot of like dietary recommendations of people saying like, no matter what you're doing, keep your protein intake steady, whether you're dieting or bulking, um, Mm -hmm. unless you need to ramp it up to support recovery from what you're doing. Um, But besides that, we don't really change protein. We don't mess with it too much unless your body Mm -hmm. just needs more of it. Or if you're like super bro shotgunning chicken breast at like three grams per pound of body weight a day, you probably can like swap that out for carbs kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But for the most part, you can think of protein as just building and supporting tissue, making sure you have enough. But there is a lot of benefits of protein in our diet, and we'll talk about this later on. But for the most part, we can think of just carbs and fat. So, Steph, would you like to talk about how we burn carbs and fats in our body? The Messy Middle Podcast will be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Are you confused about what supplements you should actually be taking? 
In a world full of juice cleanses, detox teas, fancy promises, it can really be hard to trust anything. But high quality supplements, when dosed appropriately, can actually help support your fitness goals. And that's why I use Legion. I've been using Legion supplements since the beginning of this year, and after years of never really fully committing to one single brand due to lack of transparency in their labeling, unnecessary fluff, or just reporting things as blends and not knowing what's actually my product, I finally found a solid science-based product line that fits my supplementing needs. Legion's products are 100% naturally sweetened, and my favorite part, they are fully transparent in their labeling, and they use dosages that are actually backed by what the science says you need to be effective and support your fitness goals. And not the least amount you can get away with, and not just labeling as blends, but fully transparently telling you what's in your product and why they dosed it that way. And this is huge, because it lets you know exactly what you're taking and if it's actually going to be effective, and then you can know what's going into your body. My personal favorites are their cinnamon cereal whey. Yes, it tastes as good as it sounds. The mocha cappuccino plant protein. Pulse, their pre-workout, which comes in non-stimulant or caffeinated stimulant based. And Recharge, the recovery blend, which also gives me the creatine I need to move weights well in the gym. Legion offers 100% money back guaranteed if you're not happy with their products. And you can save 20% off your first order today with our code MESSYMIDDLE at checkout. That's M-E-S-S-Y. M-I-D-D-L-E at checkout to save 20% today. Yeah. So I think a lot of us, like when we, when we think about this too, it's like, okay, well, I, and I know people all the time are like kind of fear mongering carbs and things, but like carb, carb oxidation, carb burning, like actually using carbs to make energy is super important for our bodies to do. And like, so one thing that I think a lot of people always bring up when they talk about carbs and like, yes, we need carbs. is like the fact that when you're thinking about the energy systems and how it feeds into metabolism, carbs are broken down to glucose. And that glucose usually enters through glycolysis, which is like the first like energy pathway. So if we think about like, if we're going to make energy, like that's what we're thinking about in metabolism, it kind of enters that like first like energy pathway. And we get a lot of energy from that. But we also think like glycolysis as a pathway can be separate from like the mitochondria. So like, if you like think about like, the middle one, which is like the Krebs cycle or like mm-hmm. the, the mitochondria electron transport chain, glycolysis is kind of like off by itself. So one of the important reasons like we need carbs and we think about like burning carbs is like there are some cells in our bodies that can only use carbs for energy. So like they only can do glycolysis because they don't like they can't do anything with the mitochondria. So like for example, our red blood cells don't have mitochondria in them. So they can't do any of those like you know, super energy production. So they have to just use glycolysis, which means they can only use carbs. Like there's there's cells in your brain that do that too. Like there's some other cells like throughout your body that can only do that. So like when we think about like carb oxidation, like we kind of think more so like glucose and then like or glycolysis. And then like there are other cells that can go to like the whole way and like make a lot of energy from a molecule of glucose. Um, Fat oxidation can, it's like a different pathway. So it's called like beta oxidation and that can feed into more so like what your mitochondria does. So like you're thinking about carb, um, carb oxidation, carb burning versus fat oxidation. It kind of does a different pathway, but they all kind of feed into the same pathway in order to make like the most energy through a mitochondria. I don't know if I got really deep into the science on that one, but you can add anything you want to. I don't know energy systems. You can think of it like the mitochondria is a big swimming pool where you want to, when you're swimming, you can build a lot of energy and you can go between like, maybe there's a bunch of pool tubes that you can slap and hit and you're kind of going between. And that glycolysis is the fast shoot slide. The slide that kind of really, really fastly gets you into that. um, And 
it's getting broken down really quick and it produces a lot of energy. So like a lot of speed, a lot of energy, a lot of wee. Just think of it like that, like the wee slide. Like you're, the wee's are the energy, that's the ATP. So it gives you very, very rapid results, I mm-hmm. guess. And you can think of beta oxidation as the really long, slow spinning tube slide where you go round and round and round and round. And say, think of it like you're building potential for energy while you're going round and round, but it's really slow. Mm-hmm. And then finally, you get to bring all that energy into the pool, but you have to do it more. So I don't know. I just thought of that while you were talking about that. But I think like I, that's how I taught when I tutored in undergrad. That's how I taught people stuff. And I always felt like it really worked. Like not that exact example, but things like that. Analogy. Things like that. Um, Because a lot of people, when I talk about energy systems, they're like, this is so over my head. I don't even want to read this post. I'm like, no, you're smart enough to understand it, but like, yeah. let's make it metaphorical. Yeah. Um, and so they all go down into the mitochondria, which is like Steph studies way more nitty gritty than me. I study that at like a whole body level. Um, but glucose can be made and give you fast energy and then it could exit and not even go into the mitochondria mm-hmm. or it can go into a, like a secondary system and then go into the mitochondria to make even more energy. But you mm-hmm. still don't, you get like 32 energy molecules from a thing of glucose where fat, you can get like hundreds of them, but it takes longer and it's slower and it uses different pathways mm-hmm. to, to burn. Yeah. Um, Go ahead, Steph. You can continue. No, yeah, that that's. I think that's a, a great point to like point out too. Is like you know the the carbohydrate metabolism is like much quicker, and you like yeah, you get a lot of energy from it. Like thirty two ATP is actually like a pretty good amount compared to like if you you know don't use glycolysis or if you only yeah. use that one. Like if you were to just use that first step, like you'd make like what two four like not yeah, very good. It's, it's like four yeah 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 and, but if you get into the pool like the the mitochondria you make like you know 32 which is a pretty good amount but like like you said like fat metabolism is like you know it might take longer and it's less like you know really quick energy but you get like a lot to put into the pool which is really useful yeah and so when we think of energy systems and what they can do carb oxidation is going to be you don't need oxygen to use carbs you can just burn carbs and so this is important because when we talk about exercise exercise is on a a spectrum of oxygen use and demand which is dictated by fitness status but those mitochondria that we're using in our bodies and cells they're like what they we call the quote-unquote fuel regulators or master regulators of fuel metabolism Um, and they're controlling now when those carbs and fats come into the cell what they're going to do with them or even at the whole body level, what they're bringing into the cell to even metabolize versus leaving out in the bloodstream or allowing like to go somewhere else kind of things. And so mm-hmm. they're, they're all ultimately going to go to this place, but the amount of fuel you're taking in at one time, if you're exercising the intensity of exercise and your health status is going to dictate how much goes where, at what rate, how fast, and how efficient your body is at it. So this isn't a place where when we think of good and bad metabolism, we can think of something that me and Steph both study to some degree, um, and it's this concept of metabolic flexibility. And so it's how these energy systems, the glycolysis system, your beta oxidation, your mitochondria, and the electron transfer chain, where all these things are being broken down, um, how your body is able and is efficiently able to do that. So Steph, do you want to define what metabolic flexibility is at the cellular level? And then I'll talk about what it is at the whole body level. 
Yeah, yeah. So um, as Liz mentioned at the beginning, I study cancer. So I study like obviously metabolism in like a very specific section, but obviously I need to know like what is what is metabolism supposed to do and then what does it not do mm-hmm. in cancer? So I kind of look at it as that way. And at least at the cellular level with me, it's like, okay, well, how efficiently can we switch fuel sources and how do we switch fuel sources in order to make like energy. So at the cellular level, metabolic flexibility is more so like, okay, well, how can we switch back and forth between the different energy systems? And in what way can we manipulate that like in different conditions to see like, okay, can we, can we, do we use more glycolysis or do we use more like fatty acid oxidation or do we use more like just general, like, you know, using through the mitochondria and like using oxygen to make energy. So that, that flexibility at that level is like, okay, well, can we switch fuel sources in a cell just so that we can like survive if we, for example, maybe don't have as much glucose or we don't have as much fatty acids or something like that. How can we switch energy sources there? And how does that affect how those cells make energy? Yeah. And so this whole thing I thought is cellular level then affects how things happen at the whole body level. And so I am aware of a lot of the things Steph does, but what I do in my research where she actually literally like puts cells into this thing called a seahorse and can assess their metabolism like directly and manipulate different variables like of the electron transport chain and mitochondria and like um, the the physiological environment of these cells and what they're receiving. I do this with people and I'm interested in how people respond to this. And there's two types of whole body metabolic flexibility. There's going to be your ability to respond to meals appropriately. It's called mm-hmm. the postprandial meal state. Mm-hmm. And this is important because we spend most of our lives in a postprandial meal state, except for when we are sleeping or if we decide to fast. But we spend a lot of our days in a postprandial state. So having a positive response to using your food is, this is like, I need you guys to think of this independent of weight status, even though adiposity mm-hmm. is tied to this, but you really need to think about this independent of weight status because this is about your body's metabolic health not just like necessarily mm-hmm. fat loss or fat gain, because this is one of those things that anyone can improve or is important for everyone. This isn't just a body weight thing, um, but it's your body's ability to appropriately mo- use whatever you're giving it. So if you go out and I, I use this example with students a lot, if you and your friends are going out to get a big pizza dinner, a metabolically flexible person's body is going to be able to like take all that fat and carbs at once and be like, all right, we know what to do with this. You go here. We're going to store your here, upregulate this. You move over here. Stop red light. We're a metabolically inflexible person's body and be like, what the hell do we do with this? They're going to get really backlogged with those carbs and fats. And it's going to be like a four way red light or four way stop sign, but no one's going anywhere. Um, and then this is where things like glucose or triglycerides can get backed up or pool in our blood or be like, a, they're not going to be as cleared out of our bloodstream as rapidly. And then this can downstream lead to like high blood sugar, high blood triglycerides or fatty acids or uh, uh, poor blood lipid profiles. And that itself can then lead to or contribute or um, cause things like metabolic syndrome and cardiovascular disease. So that's where those things are related to health. And that's like kind of the next thing we kind of talk about. But then we also care about it in exercise because your ability to use fuel efficiently is highly related to fitness status and fitness performance. So someone with good metabolic flexibility or good energy system capacity is going to technically be able to do more work and be a fitter person. And so this is what I care about in my studies. And this is what I do is I feed people high fat meals and I assess their whole body metabolism or I have them do exercise and I assess their metabolism. 
with this. And when you look at seeing how you can shift between carbs and fats. So I think it's important to note that like Steph said, metabolic flexibility is about your body's, your cells ability to shift between what's available and what they need. And so burning carbs is not actually a bad thing. And burning fat isn't necessarily always a good thing. It depends on the context and it's really responsive to certain things that we're doing. But what we care about is your body's ability to shift and respond quickly and efficiently when you give it a stressor. And that's essentially what metabolic flexibility is going to be, where in her cells, their stressor is the disease state, right? And that can either mm-hmm. fuck this all up or they can like efficiently switch to it, where mine's going to be like, if you guys come into my lab, if I give you a big fat shake, can you shift to burning more fat versus mm-hmm. staying where you're at in your oxidation kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. That, does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good, like, representation. Because, like I said, I look at it at such a small cellular level that it's, like, okay. It's, a, it's basically, like, the same, the same kind of deal. But it's, it's, like, looking at cells, it's, like, okay, well, if I don't give you glucose, like, how well can you still make energy? Like, can you use other, other fuel sources in order to make energy? Or, like, if I don't give you oxygen, like, how mm-hmm. does that affect, like, how you make energy? Like, do you start to rely more so on carbs? Because then you can just use glycolysis. <laughs> Or like, do you still use like fatty acid oxidation or like any of this other stuff that would maybe use more of the mitochondria? So it's it's kind of the same deal that I'm doing, but yours is like a much more like, I guess, like macro level, like yeah. what we're doing when we're living our lives. And that's the point that I think it feeds into really well about health and like performance and exercise is like, you know, thinking about it's like what your cells are using, but like at a macro level, it's thinking like, you know, how are you, how is it affecting like how your body's processing like the food that you eat and the exercise that you do and like you just living your life that, and, and that's I think it's really cool that you can like look at it from like that small of a level to like that big of a level yeah and I think it's like what's cool for you guys maybe it's not as cool I don't know I think it's really cool it's like when I'm exercising I'm literally training these individual cells to be more efficient like exercise yeah. is and that's a big backbone of my 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 PhD work is like exercise is a really cool way where you can like indirectly like Steph talked about in the beginning like you can't really tell your body what to do but exercise can improve these teeny tiny cells ability to do their jobs theoretically Mm -hmm. not all cases right like but at a whole body general absolute level that is like one way where you're like oh I'm gonna make these things a little bit more efficient I'm gonna give them a better engine kind of thing Mm -hmm. so um that's metabolic flexibility and that's super cool so Steph talked about it a little bit I don't know if you want anything else about how you assess this at a cellular level um I know I kind of mentioned your little seahorse thing I don't know if you want to go on a seahorse tangent for people yeah. on what that yeah, is I can talk about I think it. it's cool I think you should talk about it yeah and I think a lot of people like don't realize that you can like I mean I know when I came into my PhD like I hadn't really done a lot of like metabolism with individual cells kind of thing and I was like wait hold on hold on these tiny cells that are like you know yay big I can measure the metabolism of like how much oxygen they're consuming in real time like that's it's just wild to me that we have that technology but anyway that's that's a side tangent but yeah so the seahorse is the main thing that I (laughs) I do with my PhD and it's really cool because it gives me the ability to look at these individual and what I can do with the seahorse is I can look at it from like a like okay well how is glycolysis functioning so like I can literally like give it these give it a machine these things and like put cells in this machine and it will inject different things to be like okay well like what happens when we give these cells glucose like okay does that increase their glycolytic rate like can they run glycolysis more so than like 
you know, other cells. And then we can like shut it down and see what, how that affects it. And like basically see how well they can use glycolysis, but I can use the same machine to look at how their mitochondria function. So I can actually look at like how much oxygen they use, which is Mm -hmm. really wild to me. Like it's literally called like oxygen consumption rate. Like, you know, thinking about how like we breathe and use oxygen and then like how your cells do it, wild. Anyway, but like yeah. with a seahorse, I can inject um, different inhibitors into it to affect different parts of the electron transport chain. So I, I can I can just measure like what are the cells doing, like J chilling, like doing their thing, like what does that look like? And then what happens when I like stop their ability to make ATP? Like how do they react? Like how mm-hmm. much oxygen are they actually consuming to do that? And then what happens if I like take their mitochondria and I like and like poke holes in it basically. Like, and then, so it, it just makes them like go like super hardcore and they're like making energy, like super, super fast, super fast. And so how does, what does that like max respiration look like? And then I can like make in, inferences on like, again, like their flexibility, because that's like one, one method that we kind of like use to describe cells that like, can they, can they ramp up their metabolism really high? Mm-hmm. If they can, then they're kind of more flexible than if they're like just constantly running at like the same pace. Like they can't, they can't increase it. They can't do anything else with it. They're just, they're just always running it like the speed that they're at. So that's like one way that I assess metabolism. But of course, metabolism is like this whole like interconnected map. So we also use this uh, method, which I've actually just started with my PhD, where you can use like radioactivity to like label different fuel sources and then see how the cells use those fuel sources by measuring like the CO2. So like when you exhale, you give off CO2, right? Mm -hmm. Your cells do the same thing. So you can actually like measure the metabolism based on that. So I recently started doing experiments where I was measuring like glucose oxidation with that and like fatty acid oxidation with that and glutamine oxidation, which glutamine is an amino acid. And that's like a really important amino acid for cancer specifically, but like how does that all move through the different pathways? And then what does that tell us about their metabolism and how they can use different fuel sources? So it's really like, I don't know, it's really cool to me that you can measure all of that, like at such a small cellular level. But I, I, you know, we always joke lists that like, you know, I think what I, like what you do is amazing. And then like, <laughs> like we're just like, that would be so cool to like measure it at like, you know, the whole body versus the cell thing. There's a lab here that does what you do, and I took a class where we did do some of that stuff in the class in the lab, and I thought it was super cool. Um, I, I'm, I'm jealous of stuff because I want to take muscle biopsies and do what she does with human subject tissue so yeah. bad. If anyone's listening to this and has funding for a postdoc, I graduate May 2022. Um, um, shameless plug, um, I want to join your lab. Anyway, just, just, just reach out. Um, no hesitation. Um, but anyway, what's really cool about what Steph said, is that what she does at the cellular level, we essentially do at the whole body level. And that is called indirect calorimetry. So direct calorimetry would actually be like you go into these heat chambers. They have one at the NIH, like Kevin Hall, if you guys have ever heard of his research. He's a really famous uh, whole body metabolism researcher. Kevin Hall, if you're listening, I'll do a post-talk with you too. Um, (laughs) Just kidding. Well, I'm actually not kidding, but I doubt he would have funding for me because I'm not that cool. Um, But... There these, there's these big metabolic chambers that you literally live in and they feed you everything. They assess your calories burned through exercise. Like that is one way to actually measure how much calories you're burning in exercise. We'll have like exercise bikes or little steps or things like that. You sleep in there, you consume all your food. They weigh it out. They literally like weigh your excretion and they take urine samples, like all of these things. And that's direct calorimetry where you're like, basically like it's measuring the exact heat your body's radiating. And then you'll take the pee samples to assess basically like 
protein turnover to see like what you're actually burning in your body versus protein will like nitrogen nitrogen excretion is a uh, nitrogen is broken off protein when it's metabolized um so that you'll pee that out like in your urine um so that's how you can measure protein metabolism but then they can use all these factors to know like exactly what's going on in your metabolism but those are expensive it's hard to get people to do them you have to pay them a lot of money to do those studies so what we do in labs like mine is we use these metabolic carts and we use this thing called indirect calorimetry, which is a really cool way of indirectly assessing what your body's doing at a muscular cellular level, but at the whole body. So I have people where if they're doing resting metabolic rate test or a high family test, they lay down on a bed and they like are coming fasted and, and then I measure them before and after I feed them. And we're just fasted and you put them under this big plastic alien looking hood and you're measuring samples of their breath and you do the same thing during exercise except for you put a mask over their face um, and you strap it to their face so that they're breathing directly into this cart. So either way, you have these tubes that connect to these carts. You guys might have seen pictures of it on my Instagram before and it's taking samples of the air. Oh my God, this is actually the part that I struggled. I got, did really well in comps, except for like explaining how the Parco cart like exactly works. Um, I was told to read the manual. Oh my God. Like everything else I knew, like all the formal definitions and everything, but they were like, what is the, what happens once the air is inside the Parvo cart? And I froze up. I was like, what? I but did, I, side note, I did the same thing. I had like this one like random assay that I had to do. And like one of my committee members was like, okay, well, like what enzyme does it work on? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> they were like, really? Yeah. So, so like, in going. a roundabout way, besides me, to be fair, guys, I did very well in comps. Thank you very much. I just struggled <laughs> on this. Um, I was like just scared. I just froze. I was like, yeah. I know these answers, but the words are not coming out of my mouth. But anyway, when you're breathing into this thing, it sends this thing in a me metabolic chamber, and then it like basically controls the rate of what your breath is going through, takes samples. So every often, either samples or breath by breath with exercise, it takes a small sample of your breath, and then it extrapolates out the CO2 and O2 of that to the total liters of breath that you're breathing. So at rest, you're breathing less liters of air per minute um, versus exercise where it's going to increase linearly with exercise and it extrapolates that out and does this big fancy thing where it calculates based off the O2 that you're bringing in from the room. Because remember, you're breathing in room air, but you're breathing out all of your everything else into this cart. So everything of that oxygen from the room air that's calibrated to that you're breathing out into the cart is metabolized oxygen essentially. So the little CO2 Steph said that's coming out of the cells, you're then breathing that back out into this cart and it can figure out, okay, well you have this much oxygen come in and the CO2 come out. And it tells you about the amount of calories you're burning. It also tells you about the amount of carbs and fats. So during energy breakdown, those pathways that break down carbohydrates give off CO2. That's like one of the big byproducts of that. So to break down carbs, one of the things that you give off in the glucose um, and during glycolysis and then the Krebs cycle is you break down and give off CO2. Beta oxidation and like going into the electron transport chain, that doesn't give off as much CO2 or CO2 and that's reflective of fat metabolism. So as you are assessing this, if you have more CO2, that's reflective of more carbohydrate metabolism, where more O2 is going to be reflective of um, more fat oxidation. And it's the ratio of these that tell us how much of what percentage that you're doing. And you can also take like absolute values of this um, and plug it into equations to figure out how many grams per minute of carbs and fat you're consuming, which is really cool. And that's exactly what I do. Mm -hmm. um, so with this, it's something called the respiratory quotient. So it's between 0.7 and 1.0. Um, and 
closer to 0.7 you are, the more fat you're burning, the closer to 1.0, the more carbs you're burning. You can go above 1.0 during exercise because you're just expending so much carbon dioxide, but you're never going to burn more than 100% fat. I mean, 100% carbs, sorry. Um, and this can change in response to a whole bunch of things. So if we feed you a meal, your normal diet, your health status, your fitness status, those things can all change your resting metabolism. And then also during exercise, intensity is going to shift that towards carbohydrate oxidation, depending on your intensity and your fitness status. And we'll talk about that here a little bit more in the moment. But I want you guys to recognize that we don't really account for protein. I talked about how people collect urine to account for protein, and you can do that. But for the most part, we just ignore it because we assume it's minimal or trivial or doesn't really matter. It's going to be like 5% of your energy expenditure. The only time it's going to go up with that is maybe during like long endurance stuff. It might go up to like 15%. But for the most part, you just ignore it because you assume that it's constant or trivial or not insignificant in what you're actually expending. So we really only assess carb and fat intake, but that's exactly how we do it in the lab. Same thing Steph does, but instead of plugging cells into a little chamber, I put masks over people's face and just collect their oxygen um, and take samples of it. And then it gives me all these values and numbers that are super cool and just on a chart in real time as we're going. And I can watch people's metabolism respond two things that I give them like in real time, which is super cool. So Steph does that and she says, hey, I'm going to do this to you. I'm going to get to sell this. Can it shift this way? And I'm doing the same thing. Like I want you guys to recognize that I'm doing the same thing at the whole body level. I'm saying, well, I give you a ton of fat. What are you going to do? Or if I make you exercise, how are you going to respond? And that's both feedback that's similar to what Steph's doing. I'm just stressing the systems. That's all we're doing is we're providing a stress to mm -hmm. these systems. So I think that it's cool that like we both kind of do the same exact thing. <laughs> yeah. But I'm like, oh my God, it would be so cool to use a metabolic cart. Like, I mean, I took like one class, like learning how to use one. And I'm like, I always wanted to do like some kind of like metabolic cart stuff. So it's cool in theory, but yeah. it's never working. It's always broken. Same thing with the seat, Yeah. And nothing's ever working. <laughs> I think, it's you know, on this if list. anyone here is an, an exercise physiology you know that you've had a phone call with Pat Ye over in Utah. You just know that you've called, you've called him over at Parvo. I think it's Josh Brown's the other one. Very helpful, very great. But you're like, yo, what's my machine doing? And you're like, I don't know. Um, human subjects research, man. So anyway, this is also why I can't do research during COVID because I'm plussing yes. spit and air. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, this is really cool, right? And so we're both assessing kind of the same thing. And so I, I, I know that it seems like metabolic flexibility is this only unique component, but it really is just your body's ability to um, respond to stressors. And that's essentially what we're testing during exercise. You have, everyone has metabolic flexibility or a measure of it and how you respond to different things is impacted by a whole bunch of stuff. So mm -hmm. we care about this because of health and we can talk about that a little bit more performance and this can change with disease. So let's first talk about um, health and maybe we can tie in health and disease and how it changes this. And you can take that one because I think that's a little bit more unique to yeah. what you do. And I can talk even at like whole body too and then we can get into performance and exercise, so. Yeah. All right there guys. So we are going to end today's episode right there. We are super excited about this whole entire episode and there's so much knowledge, so much science in this. We wanted to split it in half so it was a little bit more digestible so you can catch up, totally absorb and understand everything we went over today. But the second half will be out next week so make sure that you catch that one as well, especially if you were loving this content. And we do have our user Q&A, very end of that one. So until then, if you enjoyed this, share, rate, review, it helps us so much, but live well demand better, and stay messy. We will catch you guys next week for the second half of the Metabolism episode.